You are listening to a sermon series from Open Door Fellowship Church. Morning, Open Door. Thank you, thank you. Some of you may recall that almost exactly a year and two months ago, I preached from this very spot on Romans 13, 1 through 7 about politics and government. Believe it or not, I got a lot of favorable feedback on that subject from a number of people. I also got a lot of questions from various people. So tempted though I was to repeat the same message from a year ago, I have outlined the material differently today, so we're approaching it from a little different perspective. I did find it interesting that God so ordered things that we are looking at this topic, including the paying of taxes, on April 15th. If this were not Sunday, this would be tax day in the USA. However, I trust you're aware that this year the the deadline for filing federal income taxes is not tomorrow, April 16th, but rather Tuesday, April 17th. The reason for that, I found out, is that the District of Columbia celebrates April 16th as a holiday because it was on that day in 1862 that Abraham Lincoln freed all the slaves in the nation's capital. So we get an extra day, an extra, extra day. Procrastinators unite. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) as as is my custom, I'm going to ask that we all stand together and uh, read the passage aloud this morning. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, honor to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, As we approach this, we know that it is a subject fraught in our minds with issues and problems and conflicts. We know that in our very country today, there is a huge divide among people regarding government, regarding how we live under government. So this morning, God, I ask that we will look at your word and knowing that only you are the reliable source of truth in this, that only you are the source of all authority. 
And that we, in looking at this, will be willing to trust you and to do as you say, even though it's hard sometimes. Also, in conjunction with the commands from your word, Father, we do pray for those in authority over us. We think of our president, we think of the Congress, we think of the federal judiciary, we think of our state government, the governor, the legislature, the county supervisors. Lord, there are levels upon levels here, and we know that they are all people, and we know that you have placed them where you have placed them, whether we like it or not. So we ask that you will give them all wisdom, that you will give them all guidance, whether they want it or not, and that, Father, you will give us the courage to trust you and submit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I titled the message this morning, Who Needs Politics? Who Needs Government? You might be tempted to say, well, no one, actually. Uh, but you'd be wrong about that. Um, because God has placed government in its place. And although we're spending most of the time this morning talking about government, I thought, thought I'd take just a moment here to consider politics. Uh, most of us have a healthy disdain for politics and politicians in general. I'd like to share with you a little scenario that epitomizes why this is true. It's called How Politics Works. I, I told my son, you will marry the girl I choose. He said, no. I told him, she is Bill Gates' daughter. He said, okay. <laughs> I called Bill Gates and I said, I want your daughter to marry my son. Bill Gates said, no. I told Bill Gates, my son is the CEO of the World Bank. Bill Gates said, okay. I called the president of the World Bank and asked him to make my son the CEO. He said, no. Come on. I told him, my son is Bill Gates' son-in-law. He said, <laughs> he said, okay. And that is how politics works. <laughs> I thought that was so good. Um, because it does, in a way, illustrate how all too often that process seems to work. My thesis this morning is that government is, ne is a necessary part. Those are hard words for us. A necessary part of the administration of God's authority. Therefore, we are to submit ourselves to it. I'm going to say that again. Government is a necessary part of the administration of God's authority. Therefore, we are to submit ourselves to it. Now, I want to take a moment here and talk about something we're going to come back to a number of times in this message. The reason that I can submit to authority is because it is a necessary part of God's administration of justice and because I trust God, not because I trust the government. Okay? If God tells me, do this, and I say, but wait a minute, I don't really like that. And he says, trust me, right? Isn't that what he says? Trust me. So, in the, in the face of all that Paul writes here, what we just read in Romans 13, 1 through 7, it might be worthwhile to look again at one slide that I used a year and two months ago. At the time that Paul wrote these words we just read, 
And at the time the Apostle Peter wrote his words in 1 Peter chapter 2, which we'll look at a little later about honoring and obeying the government, it's worthwhile to remind ourselves that this man was on the throne of Rome at the time. Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, commonly known as Nero. Uh, his rule was associated with tyranny and extravagance. Sounds familiar. Uh, he is known for executions, including those of his mother, Agrippina the Younger, his stepbrother, brother Britannicus, and his first wife, Octavia. Ancient accounts say that he captured Christians, dipped them in oil, and set them on fire in his garden as a source of light. All that is to say he was not exactly a paragon of Christian virtue, was he? We, on the other hand, are extremely fortunate in God's providence to live in a country where we are invited to participate in choosing our own government. You have to realize how rare that is in the history of the world. Nero, by the way, was also probably responsible for the great fire in Rome in AD 65, a fire which he blamed on the Christians. Anyway, with all of that in mind, let's look at the outline this morning. <clears throat> There's an underlying theology that's important for us to understand as we approach this subject. The underlying theology is this. There is no authority apart from God's absolute authority. That important fundamental idea is that there's only so much say-so, if you will, so much authority that exists. If we look at a Venn diagram here of all authority, we'll let this circle represent all authority. It's the same circle as God's authority. Do you understand that? There is no authority that's outside of God's authority. He is omnipotent. He is almighty. He is in absolute control of the heavens and the earth and everything outside of the heavens and the earth. There is only one, count them, one absolute authority. So, it's, it follows then that every authority has that authority delegated to it by God, right? If, he, if His purview is all authority and there are other authorities that exist, they must be within God's authority, right? He must have given them that authority. It is therefore a delegated authority. It is subservient to Him and must possessed that delegated authority by and from Him. As Paul puts it here in Romans 13, 1, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So back to our diagram here, any other authority, wherever, whatever it is, whether it's government, whether it's parental authority, whether it's church elder authority, whatever authority that exists exist within God's somewhere in that sphere because His authority includes all authority. There is no authority apart from Him. Every authority, therefore, falls within His. And therefore, every delegated authority 
has a limited sphere of responsibility, right? By definition, doesn't it? If God has said, look, I own all authority, and I'm giving this area, this sphere of authority to the government. I'm giving this sphere of authority to parents. I'm giving this sphere of authority to church leaders. Whatever the authority that exists, it exists because God has delegated to it that authority. There isn't any other way for that to be true. So, if that's all true, then back to our Venn diagram here for a second. Notice the relative sizes of the circles. Now, actually, if we were going to do this to scale, so to speak, the smaller authority, the smaller circle, would be invisible to the naked eye within the scope and sphere of God's authority, wouldn't it? Because God's authority is infinite. And every other authority is tiny by comparison. Think of this in terms of making a scale model of the solar system, for example. If you take a piece of paper, even a very large piece of paper, and you draw the orbits of the planets and of the sun around which they orbit to scale, the planets themselves, using that same scale, would be microscopic. You wouldn't be able to see them except with great magnification. But you say, what if I make a really big one? I take it outside. I make a really big scale, okay? Take your scale model outside. And let's say you build your scale model to the scale that where the earth is the size of a big marble. You know those marbles we used to use when we were kids, the big ones with the little funny thing inside of them? Those marbles. That's the size of the earth. Using that scale, you would need over seven miles of space to construct the corresponding size and orbits of the sun and other planets. Now, comparing the authority of anyone or anything else to the authority of God is similar to that. Not only is the amount of authority not comparable, the scope or sphere of that authority is not comparable. For example, God has not given human government the authority to dictate your spiritual life. Many governments throughout history have tried. Many still try today. But that is not within the purview that God has assigned them. We're going to come back to that idea again in a minute. Okay, so the underlying theology is there is no authority apart from God's absolute authority. Our responsibility in this <clears throat> is that we are required to submit ourselves to these authorities. This is where we get to the hard part, isn't it? I mean, really... The verb that Paul uses here to be in subjection, which is the, what the NASB translates it, hupatasso, it means that the very definition of the word means to place or rank under, to arrange under, in, order, in other words, to submit. Furthermore, even though it's in the third person, it's actually an imperative form, a command. Now, we don't have in English a third person imperative. But the sense is very clear. Every soul or life, and that's literally what Paul says here, every soul among you, be submitted to the governing authorities. It's a command. And just so we don't miss it, down in verse 5 he says, therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, in submission to that authority. Now, having said that, everyone 
everyone is under some authority. Now, that's, again, hard for us, isn't it? Whether we recognize it or not, even Jesus submits himself to the will of the Father, doesn't he? Furthermore, while he was here on the earth, in his formative years, he submitted himself to the authority of his earthly parents, didn't he? To Mary and Joseph. Think about that for just a moment. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm really quite positive that there were times in his early life when Mary and or Joseph were wrong, ill-advised in something they told him or wanted him to do. Recall, for example, the episode that Luke tells us about at the end of chapter 2 of his gospel, when Jesus was about 12 and he traveled with his parents to the, the temple of Jerusalem. They returned after a day's journey. They were on their way for a day and realized he wasn't with them. And they went back to get him. And found him sitting in the temple discussing the law with the doctors of the law and asking them questions. And when they said, what are you doing, basically, he said, well, I'm in my father's house. I had to be about my father's business here. But here's what Luke 2.51 says. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. Now, the word continued there clearly means that he had been and now continued to be in subjection to his parents. Furthermore, as if to anticipate our question, Luke uses the same verb, hypatasso, there that Paul uses in Romans 13 about submitting ourselves to government. Now, in addition to that parental authority, Jesus also submitted himself to the governmental authorities under which he lived, didn't he? We're going to see more about that a little later. So everyone is under some authority, and refusing to submit to this authority is opposing God's order. Romans 13, 5, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. The word translated ordinance here is a verb meaning to arrange, to set in order, to put things in the correct sequence, if you will. Now let's be very clear and very specific here. Biblically speaking, there are times when believers not only can but must disobey earthly authorities. When and only when those authorities overstep the sphere of authority to which God has assigned them by ordering their subjects to disobey something that God has commanded us to do. If, for instance, Congress passed a law tomorrow outlawing prayer to God in the USA, not only may I, but I must disobey that law. And so, if you look at an example of that in Daniel chapter 3, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, whom most people know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused Nebuchadnezzar's commandment to bow down and worship a golden image that he had set up. An image of himself, by the way. Uh, Anyway, and his order was that if they refused to do that, the punishment was they would be cast alive into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. I love their response to this. Let's look at it. Daniel chapter 3. 
If it so be, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. No bluster, no beating about the bush, simple statement of fact, we're going to obey God rather than men. Okay, and you remember the story, I suspect, that they were cast into the furnace of blazing fire and that God delivered them. Not only that, he went in it with them, which is wonderful. But anyway, most of the time, in most situations, we obey the government both to avoid punishment and to follow our conscience. That is, situations in which the governing authority does not order us to disobey a clear directive of God, and we can and must submit to that authority. Paul says we not only do so to avoid punishment, which he uses the word wrath here to distinguish, to uh, designate that, but also for the sake of conscience. The word conscience is an interesting word. The word that Paul uses is synedesis, which is, believe it or not, an exact translation of our word conscience. We get the word conscience from Latin, con meaning with or together, and science meaning knowledge or seeing something clearly. So to see something clearly together, to know something together is the idea of conscience. And that exact concept is what the word in Greek means. It's a precise definition, a precise translation of it. So to avoid that, we act in a certain way that conscience requires. We see the Word of God and its truth. We know our own selves and our internal world that goes on and how we perceive things, our own scruples, and we put those together and we obey because it's the right thing to do. It matters where the Scripture is silent or where it specifically leaves certain actions, certain issues open to our individual scruples. Conscience is to be our guide. Later in the study of Romans, as we get to chapter 14, that's going to become a very important idea. So, we obey to avoid the wrath and we obey for the sake of conscience. Now, the government has an assignment that God has given it. That assignment, that job, is to administer God's justice. It's an interesting thing to me that Paul, under the superintending inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not give the government carte blanche, if you will. Rather, he outlines some broad guidelines and some very specific things which government can and must do. Romans 13, 3 and 4 says, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God. Don't miss that phrase. It is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And in verse 5, for because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, 
devoting themselves to this very thing. In other words, government is not an end in itself. It is set up to administer God's program, God's justice. I wonder how many of the 535 people in the House and Senate in Washington think of themselves as servants of God. Hmm, Good question. I wonder if our president or the federal judiciary think of themselves as ministers of God for good. Whether they do or not, they are that by God's specific design. That's important for us to remember. Governments, Paul says, administer justice to punish evil behavior. That's interesting. There's a two-sided coin that he's going to talk about here. The first side is punishing evil. It's interesting that he puts that first, isn't it? Perhaps, just perhaps, it was because he understood something of the nature of mankind. Um, Unfortunately, in our culture today, there are way too many people who do not believe in the inherent sinfulness of mankind. And And that skews entirely their view of government. It really does. See, government was originally set up by God to protect innocent life. Genesis chapter 9, God set up the Noahic covenant that man was to take vengeance, if you will, upon those who had shed blood, premeditated murder. There was a punishment for that, and it was up to men to administer that punishment. That's the first order of government. Murderers, rapists, thieves. These are people that we want the government to deal with, don't we? We all do. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. When he says that it does not bear the sword in vain. Think about that for just a moment. That a sword has two basic functions. One of them is to intimidate someone. It's a weapon, after all. The other one is to take someone's life, isn't it? That's really all it's good for. So it's important that we understand that. Governments are set up by God to punish evil behavior. They really are. Furthermore, government administers justice to establish and reward good behavior. That's the second side of this coin. The design of our governmental system, the main way they do this in our system is by leaving us alone when we do what's right, isn't it? At least that was the original idea doesn't seem to be so much today, but anyway, any system of government that in any way rewards evil behavior or punishes good behavior is doomed to failure, which is to say that all human government is ultimately doomed to failure. This is because, as I observed last year when I was talking about this, all governments are corrupt in the whole history of the whole world. All governments are corrupt. You know why? Because they're made up of people. That's why. And people are corrupt. And Paul knew that when he wrote this. It wasn't a surprise. Only when Jesus Christ returns and sets up his perfect and righteous government upon the earth will that ever change. Paul was aware of all of that when he wrote this. And that brings us 
to the last major point of our outline. Our job is to submit to, support, fear, honor, and pray for government. Wow. Paul says that our submitting ourselves to authority includes giving it its due. Romans 13, 7, we read this aloud a minute ago, render to all what is due them. Tax, to whom tax is due, ouch. Custom, to whom custom. Fear, to whom fear. Honor, to whom honor. This is the verse we don't like, isn't it? I mean, really, let's be honest. Especially on April 15th, we don't like it. I want you to recall, if you will, the events that are recorded for us in Matthew 22. It also occurs in Luke, in Mark. The same episode occurs. Lest we think that it might have been a fluke that Matthew put it in there. The setup is this. The Pharisees team up with some of the Herodians, those who were fans of Herod the king, to try to put Jesus into a corner, an unwinnable situation. They intend to ask him about the legality and advisability of paying taxes to Rome. You have to know this was a very sore subject because they looked at Rome as their occupiers which, in fact, they were. They reasoned this way. If Jesus says, yes, pay the taxes, then the people who loved Him and loved Him so much will turn on Him because they'll see that He's no better than a tax collector. He's a collaborator with Rome. On the other hand, if Jesus says, no, don't pay the taxes, then they can report Him to Rome, to the authorities, for sedition against the empire that he's a dangerous person whom Rome should deal with decisively. Let's look at it. Matthew 22, 15 to 20. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one. Boy, they're really putting it on thick here, aren't they? For you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Look at what it says. But Jesus perceived their malice. Really? Yes, he did. And he said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? See, he knew they didn't really want an answer to the question. They just wanted to trap him. That's what it was about. So he calls them hypocrites. Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Yeah. See, Jesus is pretty smart. You might say that. And they showed him, he asked them to show them a coin. They showed him a denarius. Like every coin of the realm, every coin minted by the Romans, it had the image of Caesar on it. 
They all did. So he asks them, whose image is on the coin? They said, Caesar's. His logic is, well, it's got his image on it, must belong to him. Right? And if it does, what's the problem with giving it to him? But here's the kicker that he throws in, subtly. The kicker is that you and I bear the image of God because that's how He created us. And if that's true, then you and I should render ourselves to God because we bear His image, therefore we belong to Him. Oh, well now Jesus, you've quit preaching and gone to meddling here in a minute because you've You've just put us in a bad situation. You put us in a bad light. Yeah, he had. So submitting ourselves to authority includes giving it its due. That due includes paying taxes. I'm going to take a minute on each one of these. As I said, this is April 15th, and we are all painfully aware of paying taxes at this time of the year. But it's interesting that he also includes fearing its power. Fear to whom fear belongs, right? Governmental power in the hands of sinful men is a fearful thing. But I suspect that Paul is saying that we fear men only insofar as they can hurt us. Ultimately, we fear God is in control of everything. So our fear of those who are fearful is always mitigated by our trust in the Almighty God, isn't it? You remember when Daniel was thrown into the den of lions because he prayed and they had passed a law against praying to anyone but the king. And it tells us in Daniel that when it was time for the evening prayers, he opened his windows toward Jerusalem, as was his custom, and he prayed, and they caught him, and they brought him to Darius and said, "We did, this guy, he didn't look what he did. He disobeyed the law. Interesting, isn't it? Because Daniel didn't say, well, wait a minute, you have no right to punish me. He didn't say that. Because they did have a right to punish him. He disobeyed the law. Now, it was an unjust law. It was a law that was outside the sphere of influence which God had given that authority. Nevertheless, he had to pay the penalty for it, which was to be thrown into the den of lions, which he survived quite handily, by the way. So, our fear of government is always mitigated by the fact that God's in charge, ultimately. And He will set things right. He will take care of the problem if we just trust Him to do so. That's why I'm spending time talking about the idea that our submission to any authority is ultimately based upon our trust in the God who set up those authorities. Honoring the rulers. That's a good one, isn't it? That's a good one. 
Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So, if I honor those who are in authority over me, which is specifically what Peter tells us to do. In fact, let's look at that passage. Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as to the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. I will remind you once again that the king at that time was Nero. Nero. So here's the question. Can we really pray for those in authority over us? which Paul commands us to do in 1 Timothy, which Peter tells us to do, can we really pray for them honestly, earnestly, without honoring them? Can we? I don't think we can. Here's the funny thing about that. I don't think Paul or Peter would have said, I'm honoring Nero. They would have said, I'm honoring the king. I'm honoring the authority he possesses by virtue of the fact that God gave it to him. He may be a dirty, rotten scoundrel. In fact, he was. His sexual deviances are well-known and well-published, well-documented in history. He was a terrible man. But he still had authority by virtue of the fact that God put him in that place. Like it or not. So, we honor the government. We pray for it. Or do we? That's a question we have to answer. I put together a list of levels of governmental authority. By the way, this is a partial list, I know. Uh, depending on where you live, some of these may not apply to you specifically. For instance, I live outside of the sea. I live in a county island up just south of Carefree, and I don't have a city council over me, but I have the county supervisors. Anyway, most people have a school board. They have Justice of the Peace Courts. They have Stadium District Board, depending on where you live. They have a Water District Board. They have a City Council, County Supervisors, Superior Courts, State Appellate Courts, State Supreme Court, the Governor, various State Commissions, State Legislature, Federal District Court, Federal Appellate Courts, U.S. Supreme Court, U.S. House and Senate, U.S. President, and Federal Administrative Bureaucracy. I didn't put any of the police authorities in here at any level, but they belong on the list. And there are others. So it's not as though we don't have the opportunity to obey the, what Paul's talking about here, is it? <clears throat> but I wonder, I wonder how seriously we take the idea in our current system of government, in our current culture, how seriously we take the idea that part of my being in submission to the authorities that exist 
has to be my participation in setting those up. Because our government depends upon people voting to put people in office. That's how it's built. That's how it's made up. So it really is part of my responsibility to know about that, to vote. To... And you say, well, now, wait a minute. You can't say I have to vote. I'm not saying you have to vote. I'm saying if you're going to be in submission to the authorities that exist, and those authorities in our system exist by virtue of the fact that we elect them, at least some of them, not all of them. The federal bureaucracy is not elected, but anyway. Um, if, if our submission to them is predicated upon our election of them, then where are we with that? And I know this is, in our culture today, this is really difficult for us, isn't it? Because I don't know if you noticed, but there's not unanimity in our country right now <laughs> regarding government. Maybe that's escaped your notice. I don't know how, unless you live in a lead mine, but um, if you do, take my word for it, there's a big division in our country. And we can be a part of the problem, or we can be part of the solution. And the way we can be part of the solution is we can do what Paul talks about here. We can submit ourselves to government because we trust God and we can work to make that government better. Again, because we trust God and because we have that ability in our system to do so. Now, it's not easy. Believe me, it's not easy. And I'm glad that there are people who believe that they are called by God to be a part of that solution, to run for office themselves. And all of that, it's not something I don't think I could do, but <clears throat> nevertheless, I'm glad there are believers who do it. But ultimately, we have to remember that government is a necessary part of the administration of God's authority. Therefore, we are to submit ourselves to it. Not because we trust it, but because we trust God. Do you understand that? That is very important for us to, to grab hold of. That my submission to government is a function of how much I trust God. Just is. And you can say, well, I know that dirty, rotten scoundrel, I don't trust him. Well, I don't either. I don't trust him as a person. But I trust what God has set up. And I trust the system that God has put us in. It's not an accident. It is by God's design. Therefore, I have a responsibility to live under it, to obey God, to trust God, and to submit myself insofar as I possibly can to the government He's placed over me because I trust Him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious Father, this is hard for us because we so want things to be different than they are. We so want our government to be entirely righteous all the time, and we know it's not. It seems sometimes that it's rarely so. But Father, we also know that all authorities exist because you established them. So we trust you. 
And I ask that you would help us as we struggle through that every day. Not just to submit ourselves to government, but to pray for those in authority over us. God, help our hearts to be drawn to you in that. To be willing to trust you in that and to pray for them because they need it and we need it. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.